Good morning. How are we? Good. Good to see you. If you um, have a Bible, grab it. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Well, my name's R.D. I'm one of the pastors on uh, staff here, and uh, it's good to... Uh, Good to be with you all, and um, yeah, really excited. I think uh, hopefully, hopefully it'll be a good morning of pressing into what the Lord has, um, what the Lord has for us. And so, if you're new, if um, you're forgetful, uh, we're in the book of First Corinthians, and uh, we're up to chapter chapter ten. And um, what we've been doing is walking through this book fairly fairly quickly, and we've been seeing that the book of 1 Corinthians, if, if you really have no clue, is a book in the New Testament in the Bible that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians, probably 100, 150, maybe more, living in the city of Corinth, and they're trying to figure out, like all of us are, how do we follow Jesus when things are going crazy? When, when the rest of everyone around us is not following Jesus. And so uh, Paul's writing to encourage them, to challenge them, to show them where they're, they're hitting it right and where they're kind of missing the mark a lot. And so we have multiple issues that are talked about and we're coming to the end of a section on food and we're going to expand on that um, today. And really, the, as I said last time I, um, I spoke, the big massive message here of, of the gospel is that what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying is um, come to God as you are. Everyone comes to God as they are. You don't have to like be special or you don't have to do anything but come exactly as you are. But then the offer of the gospel is though you come as you are, we want you to become who you are in Christ. And so it wonderfully works both ways. It says everyone can come, everyone can drink from the well, and over time we want you to realize your identity in Christ. And as you become who you are in Christ, your behavior will then match up with what you right, say you believe. And so the problem for many of us, and by many of us I mean all of us, me included, is that what we say we believe about God doesn't always line up with our behavior, right? Um, and so Paul wants to close the gap between who we are in Christ and how we behave as followers of Jesus. And so the issue here today is dealing with food, but at a much broader level, it deals with something that many of us um, can struggle with and which can really actually, maybe more than we think about it, um, make our, our life with Jesus not as flourishing and full and deep as it can be. And that's um, the issue of forgetfulness. How many of you are forgetful? <laughs> right. Yeah, some of you just, yeah, you forgot to raise your hand, right, in that moment. <laughs> what? I don't even know what he just said. I'm so, I don't even know what's happening right now. And, right, what, what, did, what did you do on, on uh, Tuesday? I don't know, right? <laughs> All right, it was one day your week this week, only a few days ago. And many of us were like, I don't, I don't know. I really, I have no idea because we're so busy and life happens so fast and things are just so crazy. And we, we forget, right? We forget our car keys. We forget our wallet, our cell phone, right? Before I leave the house every morning to come to work or whatever, I do kind of the, the three, you know, hit thing. I'll do the phone, the keys and the wallet. And if one of them's not there, I just get into a panic and I'm trying to think, where did I leave it? And oftentimes I'm one for three or two for three. And that just messes up my whole day, right? One time I forgot uh, where I parked my car. The problem was that I had parked it in a parking garage where you think it would be easy to get, find the car and I couldn't find it. 
I mean, I couldn't find. So I, I went to a concert, came back. I was pressing the alarm, you know, on the, uh, your key so you can actually hear. I could hear it go off, and I'm walking up and down this massive parking garage. Can't find Can't hear it. Can't ever get to it. So I have to call um, the policeman to come and put me in the back of his car, which was a first, and then drive me to my car. And he was kind of like, here it is. I was like, how do you, how did, I forgot, I'm sorry, I knew, I forgot actually that I, that I parked here, right? We, we forget birthdays, we forget anniversaries, right? We forget some of the most important things. We don't really do it intentionally, we just, it just, there's so many things happening, right? And if we're, if we're prone to forget these type of things, how often do we as the people of God forget, forget God? forget who he is. Not, not that we, we just kind of go blank and think, I, I have never heard of God, but just we just kind of forget. And there's moments that we have in our life where we're so close with the Lord and we're just connected to him. And then slowly but surely Monday happens and Tuesday happens. And right, we long to get back to church and then we get filled up, right? And we're like, okay, I'm so glad I'm here at church. Why do I not come more, right? I love this. I hear this all the time, right? And you, and you, you so desire to want to be closer to the Lord this week. And then what, Monday morning happens and you're like, ah, maybe, maybe next week, right? And so for Paul, what he wants to show the people in Corinth is that forgetfulness is part of our DNA, <laughs> And yet what Jesus wants us to do is to not forget, to not be a forgetful people. But that was something that the people of Israel were. It's something that the Corinthians were and it's something that we are because it's a human thing. And so in chapter 10, Paul is going to talk about just when we forget the faithfulness of God, we're then prone um, to wander off and try and fill our lives with other things. And so he begins in chapter 10, going back to the past, to the people of Israel. In verse one of chapter 10, Paul says, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, the people of Israel, were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, which is manna, and drank the same spiritual drink, which is water from the rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Okay, stop there. This, this is an amazing passage here. Paul is writing to the people in Corinth. And he's saying, actually, the people of Israel are your family. Your great, 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 great grandparents, right? They are your family. Even though they were Jewish and you're Gentile, you have been grafted into this family story. It's part of your history. And the people of Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt. They are under the hand of Pharaoh and God liberated them. God saved them. God freed them, right? And then what Paul is saying is they had a cloud that went with them. And if you read the Old Testament uh, about where the people of Israel are freed from Egypt and then they're in the wilderness on a pilgrimage for 40 years until they arrive at the promised land. And all the while they had a cloud that went in front of them, which was the presence of God. And at night it was fire that burned. So everyone could see that God was with the people of Israel. God was guiding them into their future. He was taking them to a certain place. That's the cloud. Paul's saying they had a cloud and they, they'd been baptized into the sea, which is a metaphorical way of saying that, right, the Red Sea, when they crossed through the Red Sea, right, when an actual sea split in two and the people of Israel walked through it and then it closed in on the Egyptians. Paul's saying they saw this. They experienced all of these things that God did. It was unbelievable, and yet they forgot God. <laughs> they forgot God. That's why verse 5 is a terrifying verse. Even though they had seen all of these things, verse 5 says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered 
in the wilderness. They'd seen amazing things. They'd seen God do unbelievable things. And yet they didn't really know him. And so God was not pleased with them. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses says this, which is just this fear that the people would forget. It'll be on the screen. Moses says, he writes, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, the promised land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. Moses is saying, when you get to the promised land, which you will get to it, you're gonna see amazing things. And guess what? You didn't do any of it. You didn't build any of it. You didn't make any of the trees grow. None of these things you did. I'm giving it to you. I'm providing it for you. It's all grace. It's all mercy. But when you get there and you eat this food and you are in these cities, what may happen? Be careful, be careful. You don't forget the Lord who brought you out of slavery because now you have all this abundance. Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament scholar, wrote this. He says, Moses knows that prosperity breeds amnesia. Prosperity breeds amnesia. Well, not only does prosperity breed amnesia, but life itself breeds spiritual amnesia. It didn't even take the people of Israel to get to the promised land before they began to forget about God. In Numbers chapter 11, this will be on the screen too. This is happening while they're on their journey. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taberah because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Right, it, they forget, they forgot, right? They've seen God do amazing things. Paul's talked about here in these first four verses of 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. They've seen amazing things, but though they've seen God do all these things, they're saying, yeah, great God, manna, okay, boring, bread, big deal. Like we remember in Egypt, when we were enslaved, we had fish, right? And it was free, right? And we had this soup with leeks and cucumbers and onions. That were, those were the good old days, right? Those were the good old days. And yet they're forgetting they were in slavery and abused, because the manna and the miracles every single day were not enough for them, right? Because what they really wanted was more than God, right? It says in Numbers, it says they began to crave other food, which means they began to crave other gods and other things besides the Lord. He was no longer sufficient for their need. They lost their appetite for him. They were no longer hungry for him. They wanted to go back to their previous life because that in their own mind was more satisfying, was more filling, Right, and let us not be so arrogant to think, that, oh, how, how could they? Right, how many of us have oftentimes this week, right, in our lives, we crave other things besides the things of God, and we lose our appetite for Jesus, 
maybe slowly but surely, and we just find our, our, um, our needs being met by other things besides the Lord. Right? This is a human problem, and Paul is writing and saying, remember, remember, remember how they were, and do not be like them, because God was not pleased with them because they forgot they forgot his mercy. And he says this explicitly in verse 6. He says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us, the Corinthians and even us, from setting our hearts like they did on evil things. Do not be idolaters, verse 7, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by stinks. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Verse 14, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And so here is just a, a masterful passage where Paul is saying, we can be tempted like they were. And if you think you're standing firm, be careful, right? The most dangerous thing you could ever say in your life is that would never be me, right? I would never do that. I would never be like him. I would never be like her. Oh, but you would, you would. Right, but for the grace of God, suppressing a lot of the evilness in the world, you and I would do all kinds of evil things. And when we see things in the news and we think, how could someone do that? We should really say, well, by God's grace, I, I, I haven't done that. Right, it's, it's arrogant to say I would never do that because I'm a better person, because I'm stronger. Right, those are the people that'll fall, they'll fall. And so Paul is saying, if you think you're standing firm, if you think you're secure, make sure. Because temptation is just a, something that seduces us all of our life. Our flesh, our culture, and Satan himself have PhDs in right, temptation. That is what they do. Right? And, and temptation is the alluring of our allegiances away from the sufficiency of Jesus. It says Jesus is not sufficient. We often think of this with sexual temptation. That's one of many ways in which we're tempted to crave other food besides the pure food of Jesus. It's just keep coming over here, luring us, saying Jesus is not sufficient. This is better. This will make you happier. This will satisfy you, right? Or just to make you kind of numb or indifferent to the things of God. So you don't spend time with him. You aren't meditating on the scriptures, right? There's no real impact of God on your life. That's a win for the enemy. That's a win, right? C.S. Lewis talks about in his book, The Screwtape Letters, um, which is a letter from, um, you know, a demon to another demon trying to say, how are we going to defeat, you know, how do we make man kind of forget God? And in one passage they talk about, you know, if we want to make someone a murderer, great. If that what takes them away from God, so be it. But what if we just have someone spend their whole life playing cards, right? Well, that works too, <laughs> right? It's anything that distracts our heart and our affection and our mind from Jesus. And it's not an accident that we're so distracted, right? How many of us are just absolutely, you want to raise your hand? How many of us are absolutely distracted, right? Yeah, okay, some of you still raise your hand. Awesome, great. <laughs> I know we are, right? And on time, time that I have in the word, 
Um, you know, which, which is, I, 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 me, I'll just confess, I want more than I, I, I want to do it more. But I'll have you know, the Bible open, I'll have a, a notepad there, and I'll have my phone there, and I'll be reading a few verses, and then you know there'll be a news alert, or then there'll be an email that I've got to get to, and I'm like, okay, just one second, I'll come back to this first, hold it right there, right? And next thing you know, 30 minutes, an hour in the Word has been about actually like four or five minutes. I'm just distracted. And then I get an email, I think about work, the, the girls are up, and so I want to get them up, and just all of it blows away, right? All of it just goes away. Right? And it's not to say that, right, I shouldn't get my girls up or I shouldn't care about email at work. Those things we have to deal with. We should deal with them. And yet that becomes our normal. Right? We just lose our appetite for the Lord. And what becomes kind of a, a once-off thing becomes a daily thing. It becomes a continual thing. And the enemy keeps luring us in and just saying, next week you'll do it. Right? <laughs> next week you'll get to it. And we say, yeah, next week I'll do it. I promise. January 1st, I'm going to finally read the Bible, right? And January 5th, you're like, ah, next year. <laughs> right? I, I, I do it. I do it too. Paul here is, he just kind of runs through quickly um, some sin issues, some idolatry issues here. Um, in verses uh, 7 through 10, he talks about how the people of Israel were eating and drinking and indulging in all kinds of revelry in verse 7. It's nothing wrong with eating and drinking, right? But when you're doing it to celebrate yourself... This is not good, right? And they were celebrating themselves. They were having all these parties, which God loves parties, right? Jesus threw the best parties, right? One day he's going to throw the ultimate party, but it's going to be about him, right? Which is going to be a much better party. And it didn't honor the Lord. He next talks about sexual immorality. So that the people of God are called to bodily holiness, right? How we use our bodies matters. It actually matters. It's not just our soul. It's actually our body matters. And they're engaging, right, in sexual immorality, right? And Paul says, don't be like that. Come back. Use your bodies to bless, to serve, and to be given to others. Not in a selfish way. Be different from the world, right? The next two are just testing Christ, complaining, doubting, um, grumbling, right? Which all of us can do, right? And yet you see for all of these, people actually died because of the seriousness of these, these sins, these, these idols, right? And an idol is anything in our lives that we love more than God. It's not just a golden calf. We probably don't struggle with that. But when the Bible says flee idolatry, it's saying flee anything that you're making a God that is not God. Anything you're craving is food that's not Jesus. Tim Keller defines it this way. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. And this is what Paul and Jesus are so strong about because our hearts are idol factories, right? They, they can just make them up so quickly, things that we pursue, because we have a place in our heart that's made for eternity. That's Ecclesiastes. And if we don't fill it with the Lord Jesus, we'll fill it with something. David Foster Wallace is, was and a writer and author in the 20th and, and 21st century. Um, he's not a Christian, not by any means, but he's probably one of the most respected uh, fiction writers um, of the past probably 50 years. And he gave a commencement address where he talked about uh, idols, basically. 
right? Not a Christian, not a believer, and yet his insight here is so on target. And it, it kind of went viral, it kind of blew up, and um, people were surprised that he said it, but I want to read it to you because I think it just says what I'm trying to say much, <laughs> much better. Dave Foster Wallet, he said this in the commencement address. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, though we would say they are. It is that they are unconscious. Listen, they are default settings. They are insidious right? Intellect is a good thing. Your family is a good thing. Money, not a good thing or a bad thing. But in our hearts, we want to make it an ultimate thing. And we want to worship it and bow down before it and give it all of our allegiance. And David Foster Wallace says, you can't do that, right? It's going to eat you alive. It's insidious. This is what Paul is saying. This is what Jesus is saying. And so what we've got to do is, as followers of Jesus is like diagnose ourselves and, and right, get out um, our, our doctor hat and say, what are the, the idols in my heart? Because that's what's going right, to really prevent you from flourishing in your relationship with Jesus. When we begin to forget the Lord, then we begin to build more and more idols in our heart to satisfy us. Because we never quite forget that we're wired for eternity. You can't really forget that. And so, and and just full disclosure, so you don't think that I'm up here because I have no idols or because, right, I finally figured it all out and I have the secret, right? I don't. Besides, the secret is Jesus and trusting him over and over again. Um, Two idols that I have that I I wrestle with, um, you know, a lot. I feel like I'm getting better at them, I hope. Um, But one of them is the idol of approval. Anyone else? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, right? (laughs) I want to be approved by raising my hand. I understand. I understand. <laughs> Let's repent. <laughs> right? Approval, not, not necessarily an evil thing or a wrong thing, something we think of, right? Usually we think drugs, alcohol, illicit sex, those are the really evil things. And yet approval can be just as insidious because it turns us inward. And so for me, right, I want people to like me. Not a bad thing necessarily, right? That could have been why I got into ministry, right? Till I realized that that's a terrible occupation, right? For, for wanting people to like you. <laughs> Because people get very passionate about church, right? And yet, I, I mean, I, I love it, but it's definitely made me grow a lot because I've seen how much people's opinions affect me deeply. And so the idol of approval says my real meaning and value is found in what other people say about me. Do they approve me? Do they think I have value? Do they think I matter? If they do, I feel great about myself. If they don't, I'm absolutely crushed, right? And that's how you know what's an idol because it takes you here or it brings you down here. And right, that, that's something that I struggle with. And I just want to say, I say this to myself and I want to say it to you, if this is something you struggle with or something, right, that you, I mean, I, I crave that too. That's some of the food that I crave is approval from other people that you and I, we have all the approval that we need in Jesus. We don't need anybody else's approval. 
right? He's given us all the approval that we need. You are my son, you are my daughter, and you I am well pleased. Not because of your behavior always, but because you're my son and my daughter. I see Jesus Christ in you. You are approved. And so I have to tell myself that. So when the criticism comes, and it does, or when the affirmation comes, I say thank you, or I say I want to work on that, and I don't go home crushed. Right? I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying I perfected it. But I've identified it, so I'm, I'm, I'm aware of it. A second idol for me, um, we could spend the rest of the message on, on, uh, on these, um, is helping. And you're thinking, oh, RD, you're confessing a helping idol, right? <laughs> right? Very mature. And yet, man, for me, like, these kind of flow together. It's, it's, yeah, it's good to help people. But it's not good to help people when the reason you're helping people is so they'll look at you and say, you are amazing, right? Thank you. I'm looking to you. Without you, I couldn't have got through this, right? But I, I do this all the time, right? I remember the girl I dated in high school, right? And those relationships are usually always crazy, codependent, just, just, they just are, Right? Because it's, it's, it just is, and it's so just intense. And I remember that, that we both had, you know, a lot of just things we're walking through. I remember she would confess some things to me. And instead of being like, man, let's take that to Jesus, I remember thinking, awesome, let me put on my cape, right? <laughs> and I am going to help you. And when we get done with this, you're going to just be like, RD, why are you with me? You are so amazing, <laughs> right? And that like, <sighs> yeah, true confessions. There it is. <laughs> Like, and, and I wish I could say that I, I'm so much better than that now, but sometimes even with my wife, Emily, like, you know, I can just, I can be listening to her and I've gotten better. I, I will, by the power of Jesus, I've gotten better. And yet there can be this insidious thing where I just say, I'm going to come up with the exact right line, right? I'm going to say the exact right thing. And you're going to look at me and say, how did I get you? Right? You are unbelievable. Instead of just being like, I want to listen and I want to help. And whether you ever even realize that it was how I was helping through Jesus that matters, it, it, like, that I don't care, right? That's when you actually know that you're actually caring about someone, right? And so what, what I have a tendency to do is to be everyone's savior, right? I want to be Jesus to people instead of saying, actually, let's let Jesus be Jesus to people. <laughs> and so those are two that I have to watch. Those are things that I have to watch. And so I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's control. You have to be in control. Right, if I'm not in control, if things don't go as planned, I just blow up. That's a control idol, right? Jesus is in control of everything. You just gotta keep preaching that to yourself. Maybe your idol is a political party or an ideology. You're sold out for this cause. Nothing wrong with supporting it, but if it's your God, it'll eat you alive. Right, maybe it's your family, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's um, success, maybe it's money. It can be any number of really, really good things that we roll up to the ultimate throne and we say, you give me everything I need. And as followers of Jesus, we just have to repent from that, turn from that and say, that is not the right food. That food will just make us hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. And so what if I told you there was a meal there was food that could actually nourish you. That could actually not, so you don't just say no to idols. You actually first are filled up with the, the richest food there is, and that gives you the power to say no to idols. Right, what if I said there was a meal like that? Would you want to eat it? Would you want to eat it a lot? Well, good news, there actually is a meal like that. It's called communion. Right, it's the bread and the cup. 
That's what it is. It's actually a meal. It's the meal Jesus gave us. It's the great um, medicine for spiritual amnesia. Maybe you've not thought of communion like that, and yet it is. Right? It's the body and the blood of Jesus that we feast on. And so Paul next is going to talk about that. In verse uh, 16 and 17, he's going to remind the Corinthians, he's going to say, guys, there's a meal here that's going to help all of this, and it's going to help all of us too. He's just said flee idols in verse 14. In verse 16 and 17, he says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many, are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And there's to remind us over in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, if you want to turn there, verses 23 through 26, this is Paul just repeating the words of Jesus about what we say every time we take the bread and the cup. Paul is repeating, he says in verse 23 of chapter 11, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so that, those are the kind of the language that we usually use for communion for, um, for the Lord's Supper. And so what I want us to do is just to maybe for a moment, not just kind of rush past communion, but actually feast on it. Because communion, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup are not just remembering history. It's not just saying, let's remember what Jesus did for me and let's kind of sit in our sin. That is something that's connected to it, but it's not just like a history lesson. It's not just saying, okay, I remember the amazing thing about the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus, is that they're not just history, but they're nourishment for our lives now. It's actually the truest food we could ever eat. It's what we really crave. In fact, it's all that we need. And I know how we take communion, you're probably thinking it's just so small, right? We have these little cups and, and small little pieces of bread, I don't know what it is, and grape juice, right? And it, and it can feel like this just doesn't feel like an amazing meal. And yet, right, it's not about that. And we only take it once a month. Uh, but I remember the beauty about communion. Um, I remember growing up in the Episcopal Church. And maybe if you grew up in a more liturgical church that, um, you know, the usher would stand on the front row and then they would move back a row, you know, and everyone would come out and then go down. And that was the job that I really wanted growing up. I thought those guys have the power. Like that's, how do you get that job? Like just to move back and then everyone gets to go, right? And so I kind of get to do that now. So it kind of worked out. Um, and uh, I just remember thinking, even as a young, like, young boy, every, they would, we would all go up and the priest would say, this is the, um, the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And you would go back and then sit down. And we do this on Good Friday services. Uh, you would then see every other single person who was a follower of Jesus come up, take the bread and the cup, and then go back and sit down. I just remember, it's harder to see here visually. But I remember just thinking in those moments, and still thinking now when we take it, I try and think this. I just remember thinking, you know what, in this moment, everybody here is equal. If you're a CEO, if you just came from off the street, if you know everything about the Bible, if you never picked up a Bible in your life, the bread and the cup just equalize everybody. And so we can come to the table, and we can come to the communion, and we can come to the elements and say, this is the only food I really need. 
I, yes, Lord, I've been craving other foods. I've been longing for other foods. I've lost my appetite for you. And isn't it amazing that Jesus actually gives us an actual visual, tangible, basically gospel that we can actually eat? And oftentimes we'll say, well, there's nothing magic in the bread and the cup. And I would say, yeah, well, there's nothing magical in it. Oh, but there's power in it. There's power in it. Shauna Nequest, she writes this. She says, the table is the place where the doing stops. The trying stops. The masks are removed and we allow ourselves to be nourished like children. We allow someone else to meet our need. In a world that prides people on not having needs, on going longer and faster, on going without, on powering through, the table is a place of safety and rest and humanity where we are all allowed to be as fragile as we feel. I love what Paul says in, in verse uh, 16 and 17 in chapter 10, he says, this is the bread that we break is a participation in the body of Christ. Verse 17, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share one loaf. Paul's saying there is a massive amount of diversity, right? We've got people who are taking the bread in the cup. We've been taking it for 2,000 years. There are people taking it at churches all over the world today, right? This is, besides baptism, this is something the church has celebrated forever and ever and ever. And so Paul is saying, there all kinds of people are taking it, people with all kinds of stories. But guess what? There's only one loaf that unites us. We become one family every time we see each other taking the bread and the cup because we're feasting on Jesus himself. He is our true food. He is our true nourishment. You remember in the first four verses here where Paul says that the people of Israel had spiritual food and spiritual drink. And the rock that was with them was Jesus Christ, right? They didn't know it was Jesus Christ. And yet Paul, looking back on the Old Testament, on the pilgrimage of the people of Israel, says the rock that was with them, the water that was with them was really Jesus himself. It's not just food that satisfies you physically. This, this manna from heaven, this water was spiritual vitality. This was the presence of God made tangible. It was a foretaste of the promised land of milk and honey. That's what this spiritual food was, right? And so, right, for all of us, right, we have this same story, right? The, the bread and the cup for us are our spiritual food, right? And just like the people of Israel are on their way to the promised land, so you and I are on our way to the ultimate promised land. You and I right now, we're pilgrims, we're sojourners in the wilderness. Probably many of us feel a lot of times like we're really in a wilderness, <laughs> And yet the beautiful thing about communion is it's not just looking back to what Jesus did for us. It's nourishment for now, and it's looking forward to what Jesus will do for us. That's why Paul says, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, guys, every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, it's a foretaste of the great meal that is coming one day. You're saying, Lord Jesus, one day you're coming back for us. One day you're returning for us. And we eat this bread and we drink this cup in hope that one day you're going to make everything right. As we are being renewed by this bread and this cup, by you yourself, one day the whole world is going to be renewed. And one day you're going to bring us in the land of promise and we'll never be able to forget you ever again. Right? The people of Israel's story is our story. And so that's the power of communion. That's the power of the bread and the cup, right? They're not magical, right? It's not getting weird. It's just saying we're feasting on Jesus as our true food. 
And that's the only way we can live a life for other people. That's the only way we can say no to these other idols, these other gods, is to keep feasting on Jesus. You know, my, my greatest fear um, in my life, <laughs> or one of them, <laughs> um, is that I, I would be like the people of Israel, or that there would be some of us here that would be like the people of Israel. Right, can you imagine? They were enslaved. They saw 10 plagues. God freed them from slavery. They literally left the greatest empire in the world. God freed them. They passed through the Red Sea without any drops of water on them, right? They saw God bring down manna from heaven. They saw him do amazing, unbelievable things. God was around them. God was near them. God's presence was sustaining them. And yet, Paul says, nevertheless, nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. Many of their bodies were left in the wilderness and they never got to experience the promised land. Man, you can be a part of the church. You can even hear about God doing amazing things, right? You can, you can be teaching. You can know the Bible. You can have seen or experienced God do amazing things. And yet what I do not want on any of our tombstones is for there to be a comma and then it say, nevertheless, they never knew me, all right? They knew all about me. They spent a lot of time in church, but they never actually knew me. And so I was not pleased with them. And the good news is, you and I don't have to leave here and try and work hard for God to be pleased. God is pleased with us if we have faith in Jesus Christ. And if we are in Jesus, if when we eat the bread and the cup, we're saying, this is our true food. Lord, send me out into the world to be an ambassador for you then all the temptations of the world, all the things in this world, they'll just fall in comparison to his sufficiency, to his beauty. And so guys, whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever it is that you're being tempted by, whatever it is that's alluring you, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than whatever it is that you're looking at and saying, if I could just have that. Jesus over and over again says, I'm better. Would you taste and see that the Lord is so good? And would that be the power right, to never lose your appetite again? Let me pray for you. Father, you are so good and kind to us. Father, we forget. <laughs> we forget. Monday comes and we forget. And yet I'm thankful that every single day the, the mercy of the Lord is new. Not just on Sundays, not just on every other Thursday. <laughs> Father, but every single day your mercy is new. I pray, like the writer of Lamentations, that we would call to mind this. We would actually put it in our mind that your mercy is new, your favor is new, your grace is new for us, Lord. Father, as we are people of the bread and the cup, Father, would that just be our true food as we wander in a wilderness on our way to the promised land? Oh, Lord Jesus, would everyone here be in you so that as you look at them, you are so pleased. We're thankful that because of your son's sacrifice, you are pleased with us, Lord. <laughs> In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all the people of God said, Amen. Amen.